As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Three, two, one, zero. Hello. Welcome to... Episode 216. Money Tree Investing. Hey, Money Clan, a warm welcome to the Chain of Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Dennis O'Brien. And I'm Katie Welsh. Sir Kate, such a fun conversation with Kurt today. I know, it was such a good conversation. And we actually had like a power session because we were on his podcast and he was on our podcast. So lots of good podcasting going on over here. Yeah, nice little recording sesh. Yeah. So yeah, definitely check out our episode on the Money Tree Investing podcast. We drop a whole bunch of value bombs and we chat a lot about Kate's story and exactly what she went through with her debts. Yeah, I think it'll come out in a couple of weeks. So. Yeah, I think it's the end of the year, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely cool. Definitely check that out when it does come out. All right. Well, before we dive right into today's episode, we would love if you guys let us know what you're up to on Instagram. You can reach us. It's at Chain of Wealth on Instagram. And let us know what your money goals are for the rest of 2019. Eesh. All right, Kate, you ready to dive right in? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Welcome to Chain of Wealth. Here's your host, Dennis, inspiring you to begin your journey of financial freedom. Kirk Chrisholm is a partner and co-founder at Innovative Advisor Group. He has over 20 years of experience as an investment advisor and wealth manager. Welcome, Kirk. Hey, Kirk. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. We just finished an episode of ours and I'm excited to, to be interviewed by you now. I know. So can you tell us a little bit about you? I know you have your podcast too, Money Tree Investing. Yeah. So I run a, uh, a wealth management company. Uh, had that company for the last 11 years. I've been in the industry for about 20 years, which is great because it's allowed me to get uh, a lot of experience in the ups and downs of the markets. And uh, yeah, I also run a, uh, a podcast as well, uh, the Money Tree Investing Podcast, where we talk about just about everything under the sun from investments, debt, um, 
you know, anything money related, a lot of the emotional side of money too, which is also really important. Okay. So where did the idea for your podcast come from? I know a lot of times it comes from certain, like a certain part of your life that you wanted to like have a creative outlet. So it's a funny story. Um, I've been looking to podcast for the last two years and I've hesitated because as you both know, running a podcast is a organizational and logistical nightmare. Um, <laughs> unless you're unless you're gifted in that area, which I'm not. And so I was just guesting on a lot of shows because I didn't want to run one. And then a friend of mine, uh, Miranda Marquit, had this podcast and decided that she was done. She was just like, "I've I've been there, done that. I'm I'm ready to retire." So she allowed me to take it over for her, and um, really have just tried to transform it into kind of the vision of what I wanted to do with podcast. And I think you're, what you're getting at is really kind of the, the story that most people create with a podcast is around their own challenges and changes that they've been through. I actually have two podcasts in the works that I'm probably going to be starting in the next year about those changes and challenges because I have passions in different areas. So <laughs> I, uh, this is my me- This is my favorite medium. I don't enjoy writing. So I, I would prefer to do a podcast and write a blog. Post. I hear you 100%. I <laughs> sat down today to try to write a blog post and it took me all day. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's just to just hit record and just go for it. <laughs> well, that's what it used to do for me. It used to take me a a half a day to a day to write it. And then the next day I'd try to take half a day to edit it when I was to write blog posts. It was painful when I used mm-hmm. to do them years yeah. ago. I don't like doing them anymore. Yeah, definitely. This is much easier. So I know we were chatting a little bit about uh, before the show about uh, the struggle that a lot of millennials face when it comes to investing. And we just said most millennials are not investing these days. Could you talk a little about the, the repercussions of not investing? Yeah, and that's a great question because, you know, if, if you think about millennials, they're kind of a different generation. I mean, I guess every generation is different in their own way. But millennials have some interesting characteristics in that because they kind of came of age in the Great Recession, 2008, that it, it really kind of gave them a negative impression of, of some of the things that they should be doing and what most people should be doing um, to save. and you know, when I was coming of age, when I graduated college, I graduated in 99. So pretty much was in my dorm room watching CNBC, checking out every day what the stocks were doing, you know, checking out what my $100 of stocks were doing at that time, you know, you just just wanted to be involved in the craziness. So I think with with stuff like that, there was there was that impact for me, whereas with a lot of millennials, their impact was you know, the recession and how much wealth was destroyed and how much trust was destroyed in the system. And so a lot of them are just saving money in the bank as opposed to investing. So what's important about investing is it's really a long-term endeavor. And, you know, people have some, I guess, wrong-headed opinions about investing. You know, some people look at investing as, oh, I just need to put this money away and it needs to be in the market and it'll take care of itself. I don't think that's the right approach. There was the time from the 80s and 90s where the market pretty much went straight up and the buy and hold mentality worked well. Now, from 2000 until now, the buy and hold mentality doesn't necessarily work because the market has you know, up, a lot of ups and downs. 
But what happens is if you miss out on investing, what you're doing is you're losing out on time. So as an example, if you had invested money in 2000 and I think it was 2011, 2012, somewhere around there, it would have taken that long for you to get your money back if you'd been in the market. So you would have been losing money for 12, 13 years. Now that's not something that everybody wants to be thinking about, right? Mm -hmm. So investing at the top of the market is, is obviously not a good idea. But the point is, is, you know, investing itself, the goal is to grow your wealth over time and to find ways to grow your wealth that are going to be more than, let's say, like a CD at the local bank. Um, so the mentality of, of investing is important because it's, it's, A, it's looking longer term. You know, you're looking out 20, 30, 40 years and saying, I'll need this money then. So how can I take my money and make the most of it so that it, it creates greater wealth in, in down the road? And if you're not doing that, then you miss out on, you know, the growth with which inflation itself can, can eat away over time. So I want to ask you, if I'm a complete newbie and I've been sitting and I have a couple thousand dollars in a savings account because I've been nervous to invest and put my money anywhere, where is a reasonably safe place that I can put my money that will have a decent return? That is a great question. And I don't know that I have a simple answer for you. Um, <laughs> With investing, I've learned there's never a simple answer. It sounds like such a simple question. <laughs> it is. It's a very simple and you think that it would be easy, but it's, it, this is one of the challenges that I have with my job is my job is to provide advice to people and sometimes their clients and sometimes their friends and family. And, and I typically don't like working with friends and family because, you know, it just never ends up well. It gets hairy. Yeah, it gets a little tricky. But um, I would say generally the, what I look for in the, um, with investing is in, in trying to describe it as simple ways to, to describe investing. So like what we do is kind of complex and uh, multidimensional. But for most people that don't know a lot about investing, there are simple ways to invest, which actually technology has brought out a lot of simple ways for people to invest. I think that's not necessarily always the best way to do it, but the but there are a lot of different best practices that can help mitigate some of the risk. Like for instance, I think right now we're kind of, the stock market is at a high point. And I think a lot of people are afraid and they have a right to be because, you know, I think there's the upside is limited and the downside is potentially significant. But what I think is really important is that if you use this principle, let's just say dollar cost averaging, which is putting, let's say, $100 a month into an investment. Even if the market goes down, you're buying at cheaper prices. And that in itself is going to give you the opportunity to dollar cost average down and your risk will be lower rather than taking all your money and sticking it in and hoping it's the right time. Because it could be at the top or it could be at the bottom. We don't know. But we do know that there's, there's going to be better opportunity once the market is lower. So 
it's it's really hard. I think there's some rules of thumb, dollar cost averaging, diversification. There are some good technologies out there, some robo-advisors that have done a good job at, at you know, giving people some of these tools at a reasonable price. But it is really hard. And I think everyone should have at least a basic understanding of investing before they start because it's really easy to lose money if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So we have spoken a lot on Chain of Wealth. Dennis and I both really have been enjoying using the Robinhood app to invest in different mutual funds and stocks and everything. And I wanted to ask a couple of questions to you because I've heard you talk about it on your podcast. And then I've also heard Dennis talk about it with other people who understand investing more than I do is stock options. And I know there's, I feel like I know like the very basics of it where you can have a put and a call. And I was actually trying to explain it to my friend the other day who was also completely clueless. And it was like everything that I told her was somehow like either wrong or the opposite. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So can you go in, can you just tell us a little bit about stock options and, you know, like a basic beginner's guide to it? Sure. Um, Just don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. no, so stock options, uh, I'll try to put it this way. So stock options were originally created to manage risk. That was the entire point. They were created to help people manage risk on existing investments. And what a lot of people have done has have you currently a lot of the, you know, the institutional investors, they use them to manage risk. What a lot of retail investors or newbies will do is they'll use it to speculate and they'll say, oh, I can make 5,000% if I put this money in and, you know, invest it. I could make, you know, lots and lots of money. The problem is, is it's not built for that. So the probability is you will lose lots of money. So it's really all it is, is it's, um, it's a mathematical, investing with options is really more math than anything else. It's about probabilities. uh, It's about percentages. It's, if done the right way, it is the best tool around to mitigate risk. So I think that people need to really understand them before they're using them. So to explain options in a simple form, because, you know, once we start talking about puts and calls and, you know, selling options, buying options, it gets a little nuts. And uh, in order to keep things simple, I'm going to use this as, as, as an explanation. Okay. So let's say you buy a house, Right. You buy a mm-hmm. house for $100,000. Mm-hmm. And I come to you and I say, hey, I would love to buy your house for $120,000. But I'm not sure I want to buy it today. I want to buy that house for 120000 in the next five years, sometime in the next five years. And I'm willing to give you $5,000 for that. Now you might say, okay, that sounds like a great deal. You're going to buy it for 20000 more than I got it for. And you're going to give me an extra 5000 for the opportunity to buy it within that five years. And if I, if I do not exercise that option, then you get to keep my $5,000. So if you think of it this way, you win because you're, making, you know, you're allowing somebody to buy it for a certain price. You're getting paid for, to give them that option. 
I'm winning because I have five years in order to see if that house appreciates more than 20%, or in this case, it'd be 25%. So if you, you know, so both parties can win from this if we're getting what we want out of the equation. So does that, does that make sense in terms of, okay. So that's one way I use to explain options. There's another way, which I think is a little, um, is actually a good comparison to something that we all know is let's say you own your home, right? And let's say you have fire insurance on your home, right? Okay. So what does fire insurance do? Fire insurance. Protect you against the fire? Correct. Right. So your, your house again is worth, let's say this time it's worth $200,000, right? And you know, you're just, you're living your life and then all one, all one day your house burns down. And so now your 2000 is gone, right? But you have fire insurance. So what does fire insurance do? It basically pays you to $200,000 to, you know, build your house back to the way it was before. Right. Mm -hmm. So you get your $200,000 back. Great. You didn't lose a penny, but you have to pay for that fire insurance every year, right? So let's say you have to pay like $2,000 a year for fire insurance. But it's worth it because if the house burns down, then you, you don't lose everything. So think of options as fire insurance, not on your house, but on your portfolio. So if you use options the right way, you can protect your portfolio from burning down when the market crashes. And you can protect yourself so you can use that option to say, hey, I want my money back. And you can get that. It would cost you some premium for the insurance, but effectively you get all your money back. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. And just to sort of add to that as well as another example. So say, for example, you are a farmer and you have crop that you want to plow, but it's not ready to be plowed now. It will only be ready in six months time. In the interim, you have to plant your crop, you have to do everything. However, you look at the price in the market and you say, oh, well, I can sell this crop today for 100. But in six months time, it could be 80. Do I want to risk my potential income that I'll earn when I sell this by not paying something? And, and I think to, to add on Kirk's point, at the end of the day, you're mitigating the risk of a future event that is uncertain. And that's really where options can be really really beneficial, but also you can lose a lot of money. <laughs> so right. I liked your first advice of just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, so options, <laughs> I experimented with options in college and, you know, it was little money because you don't have much in college. Right. But, you know, it was, it was money that I saved hard for. And um, what I realized was I was doing probably what most novice investors do is they invest way too much into options and lose it all because they don't understand the risk that they're taking. And so options are complex. Um, they're relatively simple to understand if you, you know, kind of like what I was explaining them. But if you get into the details, they're, they're really good for people who are good with math and probabilities because that's really what it all, you know, surrounds itself with. Engineers love options, but you know, just to your point, basically what options are is a way to measure and define risk and mitigate it. Those are really the points. And there are, I mean, think of it this way. 
if you're investing in the stock market, let's say you're investing in some company, uh, a, you know, uh, whatever, a, I don't want to say a company because my compliance will shoot me, but you know, a ABC Corp or whatever it is, you're investing in some company. If you have a thesis about that company, you could design an option strategy around it. And this is why I love options because you could do almost anything with options. If I think the stock's going up, I can build a strategy around that. If I think it's going down, same. If I think it's going up only 5%, I could do something with that. If I think it's not going to move, I could also do something with that. Like any scenario you could possibly imagine, I could build a strategy around that. And that's what really to me is fascinating because you can not only create a strategy, but you can define your, your risk and your outcomes. And I think most people look at outcomes and they just say, oh, I'm going to buy this stock and it's going to go to the moon and I'm going to make thousands of percent return. The reality is that's not what happens. The reality is, is some stocks go up, they go up five or 10%, you know, and then they do nothing for a year or two and then they go up another five, 10 or whatever, you know, or they go down. The point is, is you, you don't have to just buy and hope. You know, you can, you can figure out a strategy that makes sense based on those timelines. So from an options perspective, and this is really interesting story. The reason I got into options was kind of, I don't want to say an accident, but it was really kind of born from the idea that I was having a challenge in my investing and I found a way around it with options. So for me, I think it was 2011, I used stop losses on my stocks. So I'd buy a stock, I'd put on a stop loss and uh, it was an extremely volatile year. So a lot of my positions got um, stopped out and it was frustrating because it happened like, I mean, it, it was probably the most volatile year that I can recall. And it was happening to everybody. And I said, you know what, I'm, I can't deal with this. This is not, um, this is, this is not good for me because psychologically I know where my strengths and weaknesses as an investor is. And I try to, um, support my weaknesses with techniques that help me. So I knew my weakness was, and still is, is a stop loss. I don't put it in the market because people can see them and they will target your stop losses and then the, then it will bounce back. So what I would do is I would keep them off the books and just keep them, you know, on a piece of paper and not put them in as an order. And what happened was it gets to the stop loss and then I'd rationalize it. I say, Oh, well, it, we're at a certain point, it's going to go back up and then we'll go down a little more. Oh, we're almost there. And it just, you just rationalize everything. So rather than dealing with that, um, an option allows me to effectively not have to be stopped out because it expires. So even if the stock goes from 100 to zero, I didn't lose any more money than I put up. So I'm not at risk but I don't need to close out the position. So if the stock does come back, then I could still potentially make money. So it, it solved a problem in my investing that I was not able to do in traditional ways. So that's one of the reasons why I like options is it just, it allows me to, to solve that challenge. Yeah. And one of the other things that's interesting about options is you kind of have to be right with two different things. Like number one, you have to be right with which direction you think something's going to go. So it could go up, it could go down, or it could stay the same. And you can kind of, like you said earlier, design your strategy around what you believe is going to happen. 
the second thing that you have to, well, that you already are exposed to is the time period. So with options, we said earlier that they have a set expiration date. So say, for example, you were to buy an option that expires in a month's time. Well, what happens if the strategy that you thought was going to work, worked, but it worked a month and a half later? At that point, you lost all your money. So you kind of have to be right on two different things with options, which is pretty interesting. Right. And the other side of that, which I think is really important to understand about options, is there's always two sides to every option. So let's say for the example of fire insurance right, that we talked about. So you're buying fire insurance on your house because you're making sure it doesn't burn down. So if it does burn down, you get your money back. If it doesn't burn down, then you lose your premium, right? But think about it from this way. Somebody else is taking the other side of that. In this case, it would be the insurance company. So the insurance company sells lots of options to people with fire insurance on their property, knowing that they're not all going to burn down. And, you know, there's a lot of pretty good math to figure out, you know, the numbers so they can make, make money. But the reality is, is a very low probability that your house is going to burn down. And they know that. So they're selling you the option and they're making a little bit of premium here and there. So while on the one side of the table, if you're buying an option and it's protecting you, then the other side of the table would be that you're giving somebody else that protection and you're taking in that premium. So what a lot of, uh, what a number of people do to generate additional income is they'll sell options. And it's a way for them to generate income off of their portfolio and at the same time reduce the risk a little bit. But it's a, it's a, a way that uh, we do here. We haven't done it lately due to the market conditions, but I'd say over the last seven years, we've done a lot of options selling to generate additional income for our clients. And that actually takes advantage of your point of the time value. So as the time expires, you're benefiting from that if you're selling options. So Katie, what do you make of this? Honestly, my brain is so confused. <laughs> I, I make nothing out of it except for the fact that I, I, un- I do understand it a little bit more that it is a way to help mitigate loss. That's the most important point. It's, I would think of it as it's a way to define your risk that you're willing to accept. That's really what options do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking about my next question, um, which gives me a good pivoting point now. And I know, Kirk, that you can't give a blanket answer for this. But we were talking, I don't remember if it was on your show or earlier in the show, but we were talking about you know, the markets now and how there could be a bit of a downturn. I don't want to say recession as much, but how can people ensure to help keep their money safe during a time like that? Well, it's a great question. And if you, I mean, we use options to do that. It's part of our strategy. You mean the options that were completely confusing and have hurt my brain a little bit? <laughs> yeah, we're not going to talk about that that because I'll give you some other ways because I don't want to hurt your brain anymore. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> um, but no, we, so when it comes to, our, let's say our, our portfolio, we use options because we're, we're very concerned about the potential outcome of the markets at this point. So it's part of our strategy. Um, so we're able to define our maximum risk. Now, for most people, there are other ways that people can do that. If, you, if your brain does hurt and you don't want to talk about options, then there are some other things that you can do. Uh, 
Um, one of the ways I think, as we mentioned, was dollar cost averaging. So investing over time, you know, putting in a fixed amount over time will allow you to, uh, and not doing it all in one one shot will allow you to reduce the risk. Diversification over multiple assets is another way. But another way is you, and this is something that is the exact opposite of what Wall Street preaches. And of course, you would think that maybe Wall Street is a little bit biased because they're trying to sell you something. You don't have to have your money in the market all the time. I know I just committed a faux pas in our whole industry. I know. I was just about to say, then where else do you put it? Well, think of it this way. There are many, many different ways to invest. There's the buy and hold, or as I call it, buy and forget, which is what most people do. They just buy something and just forget they have it. That works in certain markets and it doesn't work in certain markets. So we talked about earlier that you could have missed 13 years of your money doing nothing for 13 years um, if you had been in the market in 2000 and you know, held on to it. Now, you know, if you bought in 2007, in 2009, you would have lost 50% of your money uh, in March of 09. So the market went down 50%. That's scary. And what's scarier is, uh, what if you were retiring in 2009 and you needed that money? You can't wait another, I forget how long it was, but um, five, six years for that to come back. So you, you have to think about it from this perspective. What is the most you're willing to lose for the risk that you're taking in the portfolio? Because the reality is, if we have recession, it'll probably look something along the lines of 50%. Now, it's possible it doesn't. It's possible it goes down 20 or 30 and comes back. Um, and I hope it's that easy. Like if you look at December, December, the markets went down 20% from the summer until December, and then they jumped back. And now they're, we're back to close to all-time highs. That was a big blip for a lot of people, and it very easily could have kept going down. It didn't, but it could have. So we look at things, we're looking at them from the perspective of um, what's the worst that could happen? And how do we mitigate that? You don't have to put all of your money in stocks. I don't care how young you are. I know that they tell you, well, if you're this age, you should have this percentage in stocks. That is um, an old rule of thumb, which needs to be thrown out in the trash because it's, it doesn't necessarily make sense. So, I mean, if you look at Japan, for instance, Japan is a, is a perfect case study for what my fears are. Japan in the 80s was going through a bull market and then and then the markets crashed and came back to a much lower level. And they have never recovered since then. So you're looking at what, 30, 40 years that Japan has been in, they've been in this kind of long-term, I don't want to call it depression, but a deflationary environment, which is not doing well for their asset prices. Now their economy's humming along. People have, that culture has done a great job at, at handling it. But the reality is the asset prices haven't recovered. Now, what if that happens here? What if the market goes down and doesn't recover for 20, 30 years or more? It's highly possible based on our analysis that that, that could happen. And it's scary to think about, but 
you know, you have to think about when you're going to need the money and what if that happens. So the question really is, is how can you protect yourself? And this gets back to the millennial question of they've experienced 2008. They probably want to keep their money in cash in the bank and that's okay. I mean, people shouldn't feel like that they need to put money in the market or they're going to miss out. You know, the, the FOMO that people feel, it's real, but it doesn't have to be. You know, all that is in your head. So there are many different things you could do. You could keep it all in cash for the next recession. That would be the Jim Rogers approach, which is what he does is he says, I just wait till there's a pile of money sitting in the corner of the room and then I go pick it up. Meaning he waits for the easy trade. He doesn't do anything unless he sees a a no-brainer trade and he'll go in and he'll make it. That's one approach. Maybe you just wait for the next recession. Another approach would be you invest it and your dollar cost average and you hope for the best. Another approach would be pick a percentage you're comfortable with. Maybe put only 50% in and keep the other 50% in cash and then wait wait for a good opportunity to invest it. Or, or there are many derivatives of that. You know, you, you don't have to look at the, out, at the outcome as a, or your solution as a binary solution. You know, try to find variations of that. And I know a lot of people, especially millennials, are looking at things like robo-advisors, which do serve a good purpose, especially in terms of cost. The problem we have with robo-advisors is they haven't been tested in a recession. We don't know how they're going to operate in a recessionary period. I mean, they do great work, but they're not, ma- they're not magicians. I mean, if we have a recession, assets are going to go down. And we, in 2008, actually in 2007, we got out of the market because we kind of saw it was coming. And we spent a lot of 2008 uh, researching correlations and things like this. And what we realized was when the markets go up, diversification works. But when they go down, all the assets correlate, meaning that they all move in the same direction. So diversification doesn't really work when the market is melting down. And that's the, really the whole point of having it, having diversification is to be able to prevent that from happening or reduce the risk of it happening. And that no longer happens in these crazy markets that we find ourselves in. So people shouldn't feel like they need to follow the crowd and do what everyone else is doing because in some ways that can actually cause you to lose money. Very interesting take. Money Clan, we're just going to take a quick break and say a very big thanks to our sponsor. Masterworks is our sponsor today and they help you invest in the art market, which was previously only available to the uber wealthy. I love this because now people who are really into art and even people who aren't into art can learn a lot about it and invest in it with minimal money then because you only need a thousand dollars to start your account and that buys you 500 shares worth of Pablo Picasso paintings or a Monet painting or any because they have a whole bunch of different paintings and painters that you can choose from. Yeah Kate I'm on their website right now and I'm looking at this one piece and it's returned over 145x over the past 46 years which is a 
fantastic Holy investment. Cow. Yeah. So if you'd like to check it out, head on over to chainofwealth.com forward slash art. That's A-R-T, chainofwealth.com forward slash art. You can bypass the wait list of over 17,000 people and start investing today with Masterworks. Okay, Kirk. So after all of that, I'm curious to know what you're doing with your retirement savings. Like where you're keeping it. Where I'm keeping it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> keeping it all over the place, really. Um, we do a lot of alternatives and I'm pretty much, there's some things I invest in, but I'm not investing in the market in general. You know, we do a lot with property casualty insurers. Um, because they tend to be the best creators of wealth. But we also do a lot of private mortgages, real estate, things like that. What I'm doing is I'm investing in things that are short-term in nature, knowing that I'll be able to benefit when the market goes down. And then I just use that cash to be tactical. Uh, when I see opportunities, we jump on it. So that's kind of how I do it. But awesome. that takes a, a level of knowledge, which is not something that you know the newbies would be able to right. do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Definitely. So do you have any uh, favorite books that you're currently into? Hmm. You know, my reading right now is actually centered around personal development, personal growth. Um, so a lot of the books I've read, and actually this gets into the topic we were talking about on, on my podcast, was Essentialism. There's a book called Essentialism. And I'm drawing a blank. I think the guy's name is McEwen which is fascinating because it just helps you kind of focus on what's important and what the priority is. So that to me is a fascinating book. Um, trying to think of the, you're looking for books on investing or just in general? Just in general. Yeah. We just like to know what other people are reading. Yeah. I, I love reading Simon Sinek's books. Uh, Leaders Eat Last. I just read that one. I uh, read David Goggins's book, Can't Hurt Me. Awesome book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Have you guys read that? I have not, not. No, I have not. It's a story about a guy who had a really crappy life and it talks about the struggles he went through and how that struggle helped him grow personally and how he continues to put himself in a position to challenge himself and to struggle to get this growth. And I think if people understand the message of that, it is really powerful because it just shows you that there is no growth without struggle. Right. Like if you really think about yourself and like what you guys went through, right? I mean, you went through this struggle to save and pay off debt like that. It was a struggle, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But you probably personally grew from that experience, right? Right. So that's, those are some of my favorite ones at the moment. Okay. And do you have a quote that you try to live by? Hmm. I have a lot of quotes. Unfortunately, they're at the office right now. <laughs> trying to think if I can, I can, I'll pull one that I, I like to say. It's that the only failure is the one that you don't learn from. Okay. So that's, that's one that I, I, I like. And the other ones, there's some, there's a good quote and I'm trying to remember, uh, I think it was Marcus Aurelius, but it was something along the lines of, there are no facts, there are only opinions. There is no reality. There's only perspectives. I love it. Which is kind of deep, but it's really powerful to, you know, get to your mindset about the fact that each one of us has our own lens on reality on this thing we call life. And they're all different. 
and there is no there is no truth there is no fact it's just opinion and of course we can all agree that there are certain things that are acceptable and not but that's only acceptable and not because we made it so and i had this quote on my um on linkedin the other day and somebody commented they said what about you know like women women didn't always have rights and i said yeah because we as a society decided that that was now important where it wasn't as important you know 100 years ago right. it's important now but we can say now that this is an important thing that's our lens but 100 years ago we didn't say that well how are i don't mean to get on a soapbox but like how are we to say that that's right or wrong right of course we say it's wrong now because we've decided that it is wrong right and i think we'd all here agree that it is wrong but wrong. at the time why didn't people decide it was wrong then you know we weren't any less human we weren't any less empathetic it's just we all have our own perspective of of how we're seeing the world and we need to be aware that that is our own lens and perspective and if we're able to do that it allows us to see this reality in a different way that is more mindful rather than um, judgmental. Absolutely love that. Money Clan Movie Hack with Kirk. You can check out his website. It's innovativewealth.com. And also don't forget to check out his podcast. It's Money Tree Investing. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.